Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. But we've discovered through, through Romans 7 that, that Paul, in Romans 7 specifically, is, is talking to us about sin and our relationship to sin. And, and he gives probably one of the most thorough analyses of sin and our, our relationship uh, as we relate to sin as followers of Jesus, but in spe- specifically um, our relationship to the law and what does that, what does that all look like. So we'll be, be talking about that today. Let me give you just a, a brief flyby if you're new to Central, and it's important for us to understand some context around Romans 7 uh, before we jump in. So Romans chapter 1, Paul starts off his letter to this church in Rome, and he says, says hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because in the gospel, it's the, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that's kind of the overall theme of Romans is this idea of salvation and why salvation is such a big deal. Why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? And and from there he launches into that. And he starts in in chapter 1 through chapter 3 highlighting the bad news before he gets to the good news. He highlights how how you and I, how all of humanity has rebelled against God. We got this issue uh, called sin. And sin not only separates us from God, but sin could, could literally condemn us for all of eternity. So that's, that's the bad news. But he launches into the good news from there and he talks to us in Romans chapter 3 through chapter 5 about this, this $5 word called justification. He says this in Romans 5, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, since we have been, been justified by faith, you've been justified by faith. And whatever justification is, it's, it's something that you want because it leads to this. It says we have peace with God because we've been justified through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul ultimately unpacks for us that salvation. Uh, What we would say is someone getting saved. Uh, He would say salvation is experienced in three parts. Uh, The first part is justification. This takes place back here when you surrender your life to God. You say, God, I'm all in for you. Like whatever you have for me, I'm in, I'm on. And then, then he says, so justification takes place the moment you get saved. Second, he says, sanctification is the second part of that, experiencing salvation. And then one day there's glorification. And I don't know about you, but I'm super excited about the third part. All parts are awesome, but the third part's what Kristen's experiencing right now. She's got a glorified body that can withstand the very presence of God. She has a body that's fully healed, fully restored. Like, so, so, it's so awesome, it's hard to even articulate. But, but that's true for you. If you've been saved, you have been justified, you are being sanctified, and one day you will be glorified. That's what Paul's going to unpack for us. Here's what justification is. You're like, what does that even mean? We've been working off this definition that justification is the act of God, whereby he forgives the unsaved person's sin, and then he credits to them. He assigns to them. He imputes to them the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, God's righteousness. All that's yours went through faith you believe. So check it out. Like, does God forgive you? Yes, 100%. Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sin and transgression from you. And I don't know about you, but your boy's blown it. And so I'm super grateful he's forgiven my sin. But he doesn't just leave me there. He now credits. He assigns the righteousness of Christ to my account. So now I can come boldly to God, not because of the good things I've done, but because he's clothed me in the righteousness of Christ. Can you believe it? It's like we're bankrupt in righteousness before God. But on the cross, Jesus died a death that you deserve, that I deserve. 
And you know, so, so God treated Jesus like your sins deserve, like my sins deserve. But now he treats you like only Jesus deserves. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty awesome. And all that's yours simply by faith when you believe. That takes place the moment of salvation, the Bible says. So, so if you're a follower of Jesus, this has been your experience. Sins forgiven, righteousness of Christ credited to your account. Then in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7, he talks to us about this word sanctification, which is another $5 word. Romans 6, 19 says, For just as you presented the members of your bodies as slaves to impurity. So in other words, you used your hands, you used your feet, you, your feet took you places you probably shouldn't have gone, your hands touched some things probably shouldn't have touched, you thought some thoughts you shouldn't have done, your, your hands were your used, your, your members were used for impurity and lawlessness, leading to more and more lawlessness. But now, now that you've been justified, now that you've been forgiven, righteousness of Christ credited to your account through faith when you believe, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, there's the word, sanctification. Romans 6.22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Now, it's important for us to understand when a lot of times when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not talking about a duration of time. You would need to know that every man, woman, boy, and girl will live forever. A a duration of time, not not just a quantity of time, but when the Bible uses eternal life, it's often talking about a quality of existence. Everyone will live forever, eternity, either in the presence of God in heaven or absent from the presence of God in hell. That's true of all of us. But right now, because because of sanctification, we can experience this quality of life, a quality of existence. Jesus said this, uh, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. And so sanctification, it leads to this quality of life. And I would just suggest to you, if you got saved way back here, but now you just live life on your own terms, I would just say you're missing out on salvation's greatest gift, which is freedom in the present. Jesus said this, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. Well, how do you experience life to the fullest? It's through this sanctification process. We say, well, what does sanctification mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Here it is, sanctification. Here's our definition. Sanctification is the process whereby a believer becomes more and more like Jesus. And that's important for you to understand. It's not, it's not become more and more of a rule keeper, not more and more do this, don't do this. No, no, you just, you just see Jesus. Jesus, I just want to follow you the way you lived. I want to live. Dallas Willard said that, that a disciple is someone who, who would live as Jesus lived if he were in your place. You respond to that, that comment the way Jesus would. You respond to your employer the way Jesus would. You interact in that relationship the way Jesus would. That's what a disciple is. So sanctification is a process whereby the believer becomes more and more like Jesus or holy as a result of God's work in us. Like the Holy Spirit has to come alongside and help us in that, right? But also our obedience to God's word saying, God, I believe your word's true and I'm gonna apply it to my life. And in this process, there's freedom. And I don't know about you, but I I believed the cross for a long time, but I lived life on my own terms. When I finally started applying God's word to my life, I was like, holy smokes, this stuff's real. And what I hoped the pipe would bring me, what I hoped all those activities would bring me, only following Jesus actually brought freedom, actually brought peace, actually brought comfort. Didn't make problems go away. But in the midst of those problems, I had the presence of God and that was... That was everything. So one key in the sanctification process is is understanding your position in Christ. And that's what Paul's talking to us about a little bit in Romans 6 and now in Romans 7 for sure. First, he says in Romans 6 that you're dead to sin. He says this, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? 
So he's unpacked justification, said, hey, boys, your sin's forgiven. Past, present, future, good news. Righteousness of Christ given to your account, good news. All that's yours through faith when you believe. And so naturally people say, well, if I've been forgiven, if my right standing with God isn't contingent on my performance or keeping rules of do's and don'ts, then why does it matter? Maybe I should just live however I want to. He says, so shall we continue in sin then so that grace may abound? Heck no. By no means. It's no, no, double no. And he's going to say this again in our verse today in verse, uh, chapter 7. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So in your relationship with God, it's important for you to know positionally you're, you're dead to sin. So, so you're dead to sin, but here's what you'd also need to know. It's sin's not dead to you. So on one hand, sin doesn't have authority over your life. You don't have to succumb to sin any longer. You can say no to sin. Sin no longer has to be your master. But you also need to know that sin wants to master you. And so on one hand, you're dead to sin, but sin's not dead to you. In the same way, you're dead to the law, but the law's not dead to you. Here's what we unpacked last week, Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit to God. So the law's dead to you, but, but the law also wants to bring you back under control. And there, here's my challenge. Here's why this is such a big deal. Here's why Paul, I think, spent so much time on this. I think a lot of Christians who love God, who've experienced the radical grace of Jesus, they, they, they feel like, man, on the cross, I think Jesus forgave me and I'm so thankful for that. Now it's incumbent upon me. Now I must keep all the rules, the do's and don'ts to maintain that right standing with God. And I think that's, that's a mistake. I think that leads to, to bondage, not to to freedom in the Christian walk. And I think Paul's going to uh, land there too. He talks about living under law versus living under grace. And believers in Jesus can live in both, I believe. Here's what living under the law means. This is in your notes as well. But under law is keeping rules to be righteous in God's sight. And so the way this works is whenever you have a good week, you come to this place, you're like, yeah, <laughs> woo, God, I'm your man. Like me and God are close, right? But then you have a bad week. You're like, gosh, I really blew it. Both are wrong. Your righteousness was never about you. It was never about your performance. Here's what life under grace is. All of my righteousness, and understand that all of my righteousness comes as a gift from God. It's a gift from Christ. Here's where our verse begins today. Romans 7, 7 says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? Same word, by no means. No, no, double, double no. And so let me give you a few facts about the law before we jump into Romans 7 through 13. Um, first off, you're taking notes as we really begin. The law is good. It's important for us to understand that the law is good because because of the law, there's also sin. So we can also almost equate the law as sin, but it's, that's not the case. The law is actually good. Romans seven twelve says this. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The challenge is the way we interact with the law, the way, the way we allow the law to have authority in, in our life. So the law is good. Second, the law cannot save you. Keeping all the rules cannot save you. We hear people say, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. What they mean by that is I have this list, a moral code and ethic that I, obtain, I, I follow. And because I follow that, I think God's going to let me into heaven. But the law can't save you. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human will be justified, there's the word again, in his sight. 
We can't be made right with God by keeping the law. Galatians 2.21 says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification, right relationship with God, it could be possible through the law, if that's even possible, then Christ died for no purpose. And so the reason Jesus came so that you could be justified because the law could never do it. The law can't save you. Third, it's important for us to know as followers of Jesus that the law can't sanctify you either. Another, another $5 word, sanctify you. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's important for you to understand the law, keeping the law doesn't produce holiness. Only Jesus does that in the life of a believer and having a relationship with him. So notice the law isn't the problem. The problem is our, it's our sinful nature and how we respond to the law. All right, so here's, here's some good things about the law. So the law is good. Here's three reasons why, real quickly, then we'll jump into our text. Um, the law is good because it tell us, tells us what a righteous life looks like. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Speaking of Jesus, how could this be true of Jesus? Well, well the law reveals that. Jesus kept the law perfectly he didn't come to abolish the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. He, he never sinned, but we only know that because the law tells us what, what sin is, which leads us to our second observation, why the law is good. The law is good because it reveals what sin looks like. Romans 3.23, Paul says this, for, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Like God has a standard, uh, don't lie, uh, don't steal. And we've all been guilty of that. We've violated the standard. That's where sin enters the picture. And the question is, what do we do with our, our, our sin? And so the law reveals what sin looks like. Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. He says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So understanding the law is important for us to understand the depths of God's radical grace in our life. Like when I understand God's standard, and I also see my life and my actions in comparison, I realize I'm in big trouble. I realize I desperately need a savior. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 36, I tell you the truth, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I don't know about you, but I've said some, a lot of careless words. And, and Jesus said, you're gonna give an account. It's like uh, there's an Excel sheet with your, your name on it. There's a ledger, there's a receipt. On this day, Tim said this. On this day, Tim said that. And apart from the radical rescuing grace of Jesus, I'll give an account for every careless word I've ever spoken. And when I reflect on that, I think, God, thank you for your radical grace that saves me. Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly, for the faithless, for the detestable, as for murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. Anybody lied? Here's the potential consequence of that. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's what I deserve. But I'm so thankful because of God's radical grace. I'm so thankful I've been justified, sins forgiven, righteousness credited. So that doesn't have to be my story. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists reasons why they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Which, let's be honest, that covers the whole scope of us. Like we've, 
done that. And justly, on the day of judgment, there won't be debate. Well, I didn't really know. There there won't be questioning. There won't be a, a, a back and forth. No, no, no. It'll be very clear. The evidence will be stacked against us. And God will render a just verdict. Verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were, there's the word, sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful he doesn't treat us like our sins deserve? But the law, the law reveals what sin looks like. And a proper response as followers of Jesus, when we see the law and we see our life, it should motivate us to say, God, thank you for your radical grace in my life. I know what my sins deserve, but I also know what your salvation has purchased for me. And I'm grateful. Third and final, the law is good because it leads people to repentance and salvation. When people realize that their actions and behavior before a holy God is grounds for eternal separation, eternal punishment, it leads people, hopefully, if they're thoughtful people, it leads people to say, God, I just need some help here. But, but repentance and salvation are always coupled together. Jesus said this, Luke 13, 3, but unless you repent, you too will perish. And so maybe you're fairly new to this church space. You're like, you you guys are using a lot of words I don't even know. Uh, What's repentance mean? And so repentance is this. I'm just going this way. I'm doing whatever feels good to me. The mantra of our society today is you do you, boo. Like you just, you just do you. Like whatever that is, like you just do that. That would be good. And in that, that posture, I'm in authority in my heart, in my life. I do what I want, when I want, how I want, what feels right. Repentance is saying, maybe there is a God. And maybe it's not all about me, what I want, how I feel in the moment. And God, I'm turning to you. I'm going to let you be the king that sits on the throne of my heart. I'm going to let you have authority over, over my life. I'm going to recognize your word's true. And you're going to, the word has authority to, to tell me like, ah, you feel this way, but the word says this. So I got, I'm going with your word. And repentance is a, a turning. So I'm doing this way, doing my own thing. Now I'm turning to God. God, I'm going to do it your way. Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you've had that moment where you say, God, I'm turning from my old ways. I'm turning to you. Jesus says you'll, you'll perish. Acts 2, 37, the church is birthed in Acts. Like people are, dudes are speaking in tongues. They're, they're declaring the praises of God in languages they don't even know. They lay out the gospel. Like here's, here's the law. They knew the law in that culture. They say, but Jesus did this and he did it for forgiveness of your sins. And the people are cut to the heart. And it says this in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like, like how can I be made right with God? I recognize I've blown it. I know what my sins deserve. How can I be made right with God? Look what they say. And Peter said to them, repent. You've been living life this way. It's time to turn to God, do life his way. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Check it out. On that day, 3,000 people went public with their faith and got baptized. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, Today, some people are going to get baptized. Probably not 3,000, but powerful nonetheless. Because people have realized, man, I've been doing life my own way. I need a Savior. God, I'm turning to you. And the next best step in that, in that, that journey with Jesus is to go public with your faith and get baptized. And so we're so fired up for those of you that are going to get baptized. And if you haven't been baptized... Since you committed your life to Jesus, I would just say, what are you waiting for? 
Why not today? The water's hot. We got shorts. Come on, man. Like it's your next best step. Like if he's on the throne of your heart, let him be the leader. And he says, get baptized. So something to think about over the next 10 minutes and be ready to take take the plunge, baby. So with that as an introduction, uh, let's jump into Romans 7. Uh, I'm joking. It's not just an introduction. That's a little bit more than an introduction. Uh, Romans 7, some of you are like, I think we need to bail right now. It's time for lunch. All right, Romans 7. Uh, Why don't you stand with me, if you would, uh, for an honoring of God's word um, and to stretch out those legs a little bit. But let's honor God's word uh, as we stand and and read this with reverence, realizing this is the word of the Lord to us today. Um, There's going to be some words. We can pull up Romans 7, if you could, uh, in red. And when we get to those red letter words, I invite you to read it out loud, really loud, really proud. Let the neighbors hear it. All right, here's what it says, Romans 7. 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, it sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought me death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And boy, does sin do that. And, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment's holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? I know But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Father, I pray. You'd open your word, open our minds, that we'd be good soil for your seeds to fall on, that, God, we'd take action today. As we learn about your law and our relationship to your law now as followers of Jesus under a new covenant, a new reign of grace, help us to understand, grasp it, and apply it to our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, give someone a high five and say, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? If not, today's your day. All right? Today's your day. All right. Go ahead and have a seat. So let's, we're going to march through this real quickly, verse by verse. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law ha- did not say, do not covet. So it's important for us to, to recognize two words here, no. Um, in, in the New Testament primarily is written in Greek. It's translated into English. And uh, th- this, this word no, it's the same word in English, is two different words in the Greek. Uh, the first word is oida. It's this, this idea of knowing because I've, I've read something. I have intellectual knowledge about something. Uh, this second word is genesco, and it's to know by experience. So it's like I can read this textbook, and it can ex- explain to me how a stove works how it can boil water so I can cook my pasta. And that's a beautiful thing. And so I understand on an intellectual level. But there's another level of learning that while my pasta is boiling, I can go to that stove and I can put my hand on that burner. And then I can look at my hand and say, wow, I got a lot of blisters. I know at a whole different level, right? And that's what Paul's talking about. I would, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So I, I had an understanding. I read about coveting. I read, I knew that there was a sin. I had an intellectual understanding of it. For I would not have known, I personally experienced this, what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet because the law said not to do it. So, so I just did it. 
And now I recognize that death entered my life in that moment. There's the way you can know, but, but then there's also a way you can know. And that's what Paul's saying his relationship to sin is. Verse 7 and 8, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except for the law. For, for I would not have known what covenant really was if the law didn't say do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity. Seizing the opportunity. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It literally means to set up a base camp. It's like an army that establishes an outpost. So like sin established this outpost in my life afforded by the commandment. And as a result, it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. There's something in our sinful nature that whenever someone says, don't do that, what do we say? You know, I hadn't thought about it, but I think I want to do that. You know, whenever, if you're like me, younger, in, in first day of school, the teacher would go through like all the rules, right? Um, and they basically give like 15 things you should not do throughout the year. I'm like, wow, 10 of those had never entered my mind until right now. But those sound fun, actually. So I'm trying to think of ways that I could do that and get by with it. Because this sinful nature in me, it sees it. So the, the, the command's good, but my sinful nature responds to it in a not so good way. Uh, there's a flagship hotel in Galveston, Texas, and it's right there on the ocean, a beautiful spot. And, uh, and it backs up to the, the oceans there. And the, the ground floor is like glass panes from floor to ceiling. It's the dining room area. And uh, so you can see on the ocean, it's beautiful. And there's, there's, there's levels, there's floors upon floor upon floor of, of, of hotel rooms on top of it with balconies. Uh, but they had this problem uh, on balconies. They said no fishing off the, off the balcony. And so what do you think people wanted to do? Fish off the balcony. And so this hotel would spend thousands and thousands of dollars a year repay, replacing panes of glass as unexperienced fishermen and women try to cast their, their hook into the ocean and fish. Or when they were reeling up, it would break that pane of glass and shatter it. Thousands of dollars. So they, they brought in consultants. They brought in a marketing company. Hey, we're, we're losing revenue because we keep paying for stinking panes of glass. Hotel's doing good, but this glass is hurting us. And so, so they tried a variety of things, no resolve. And someone within the company who actually worked at the hotel on the ground level was like, hey, I, here's an idea. What if we just took the signs away? No fishing, right? And you know what? The problem went away like that. Because, because it just isn't our nature. I don't know if you've ever stayed in a hotel room and thought, you know what, it would be really cool to fish out of this room. I'd never in my mind. But if I see the sign, I'm like, Tiffany, time to go buy some tackle. Your boy's about to go fishing. <laughs> it's just in our nature, right? So, so the law is good, but our sinful nature, in, in response to it, it produces this outpost, this, 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 this base camp of sin in our lives, which on that note, I would say for parents, be very careful having a long list of do's and don'ts for your kids. Uh, as parents, we try to minimize, we have rules, we have standards, and we're, we're quick to allow our kids to adjust to those standards when they get out of line. But, but I would say this, be very careful with the long litany, litness of, of rules. Like if you say, hey, you know what, you got a new computer, don't go to this website. Well, what'd you just plant in their mind? I think I want to go to that website. It's, it's our sinful nature in us. And, and for that, I would say the same is true in your Christian walk. You have to be very careful what level of authority you allow the law to have in your life. Because if you just think, like you try to white knuckle it, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie What are you thinking about all day? It's like the alcoholic. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. What's he thinking about? 
He just wants a drink. Well, well set your eyes on something bigger. So that's why a higher authority is so, so big in recovery. Like focus on God. A.W. Tozer says when you focus on, when you, when you stop tinkering with your soul and you begin to look away to the perfect one, you'll, you'll begin to realize that it's, it's God working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. But as long as your mind's fixed on the problem, as long as your mind's fixed on the law, you're just going to trip over it every time. But when you say, God, come do a work in me, everything begins to change. Uh, Romans 7 verse 9 says, Once I was alive apart from the law. So, so the law is fine, but, but it's when sin entered the pictures that, that, that we die. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I, I died. In other words, the law is good, but my flesh, it's, it's weak and I, I don't respond well to it. Romans 7.10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought me death. The, the commandments are good. Like when you begin to live according to God's ways, it, it's like God, he wired you. He, he created you. He knows how you thrive. A life free from lying will help you thrive. A life free from, from list it, you name the, the sin, you know, free from that will, will bring life. So the law is good. He's once alive apart from the law. The commandment is good, but, but sin sprang to life, I died. Um, yeah, verse, verse 10. So now verse 11. Uh, for sin, seizing the opportunity. There it is again. It, it, sin created this base camp of operation in my life. How, how did it do it? Afforded by the commandment. The commandment came, sin sprang to life. It deceived me. And through the, the commandment, put me to death because he took action on it. And, and how many have experienced this? Sin's very deceitful. Looks great, but doesn't end well. Here's five ways, or we could do a long list, but five quick ways um, uh, sin deceives us. Uh, number one, sin deceives about righteousness. Sin deceives us about righteousness. And, and sin deceives us about righteousness whether you're doing really good or whether you're doing really bad. There's, there's ditches on both sides of that street. Uh, Jesus shared in the, the gospel account uh, about this man. He was a, a keeper of the law. And he said, he went to the temple to pray. He said, God, I thank you that, that, I, uh, that you got me on my team. Like I, you want me on your team because I keep the law. Like I tithe. Like God, I pray three times a day. God, I thank you. I'm not like that dude who's a tax collector, like he just blows it every turn. Like, like his righteousness, his sin deceived him about his righteousness. And there's this other dude on the corner, like prostate on his knees, praying before God, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says the guy that cried out for mercy was the one who was right, not the guy who thought he had it all together. Because sin, it deceives us in regards to righteousness. It make us think we're better than we are, or it can make us think we're worse than we are. Sin deceives you about righteousness. And, and so maybe you came into this place today and you're like, man, it's been a while since I've been in church, but I've really blown it. Well, hey, welcome to the club. We all have. Our right standing with God is never based on our performance. Our right righteousness comes from Christ alone. So you can have freedom to worship God, knowing that he's forgiven you. You can reach out to him and have mercy and grace. But, but sin deceives on both sides of that. Righteousness deceives about righteousness. Second, sin deceives... Uh, by making people think the law is unreasonable. Makes us think, like sin will say, like, how could you ever live up to that? Like, I know what the Bible says, but bro, I also know you, and I don't think you could ever do that. Jesus boiled down all the law, all the prophets, all, all, boiled it all down to this statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And even with that condensed version, sin's there to say, yeah, how could you ever love God like that? 
Yeah, you know what? Like the Bible standard is ridiculous. Matter of fact, like doesn't even pay for it. Like you just go do what you want. Makes you think the law is un, unreasonable. Third, sin deceives by making people think there are no consequences. And even today, as I was talking about justification, recognizing that, that your sins of your past, present, and future are forgiven, they're dealt with on the cross. When you realize that righteousness has been given to you, not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account, sin's there to say, well, hey, then why does it matter how you live? Why don't you just do whatever you want? Live however you want, free game. Sin deceives us into thinking there are no consequences when the reality is, whether we're under grace or not, we all reap what we sow. We can sow to see, feed the sinful nature, from that nature we'll reap death, Paul says, or we can sow to please the spirit, from that, 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 that spirit we'll reap eternal life. But sin wants you to make, make you think, there's no consequences, just do what you want, how you want, when you want. Four, sin deceives by making people think God is against them. Like you've blown it. So like God's really mad at you now. So how dare you be a hypocrite and come into this place and worship? How dare you think you could call out to God in your time of need? Sin will deceive you to make you think God's mad at you. Here's what I know to be true, just with practically with my own kids. When my kids blow it, I don't say, hey, you messed up, so dad doesn't want anything to do with you. No, when my kids are hurting, when my kids blow it, they need more of me, not less of me. I think the same is true with our heavenly father. He draws near, he's, he's there to help. That's why every service we close out with this, this statement, profound statement from Romans 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? He's for you. But sin wants you to think he's against you. Fifth and final, sin deceives by making sin look so attractive. And boy, is that true. Sin looks so good. It promises you everything and delivers nothing. It's, it's like fishing, you know, we talked about this through Romans, but like the way you fish for a trout and the way you fish for a shark are very different. But the principle is the same. You take what looks attractive to them. You, you put a bait in front of them that they think, wow, if I eat that minnow, that would really satisfy me. Or if I eat that octopus, that would be delicious. But what they don't realize is there's a hook ready to, to deceive them, ready for you to flay them ready for you to grill them or throw them into some grease, which is delicious. But they're deceived. Same's true in your life. Same's true in my life. The enemy has a hook and a lure with your name on it. And the lure that he throws to Sharice, probably the same lure he's gonna to throw to Tim. The lure he throws to Richard, probably not the same lure he's gonna to throw to Keith. Probably not the same lure he's going to throw to Steve. Not the same lure he's going to throw. But he's got a lure with her name on it. And you just need to know it looks good. That's why, that's why it's important for you to be in your Bible. Say, God, what does your word say? Because God, my thoughts, my feelings, this looks real attractive. But God, I know your word says this. So God, even though I really, I really think that would satisfy me, I'm going with your word because I trust you know best. But sin deceives by making sin look super attractive. All right, last two verses, Romans 7, 12 through 13. So then, here's his conclusion. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly 
sinful. And this is why Paul gives us one of the most thorough analyses on sin. It's like Paul's ripping the mask off of sin so we can see it for what it is. And he says, hey, the law is good. The commandments are good. The challenge is I got this sinful nature and I want to rebel against that. But when I do, I realize it produces death in me. And we've all experienced that. We all, we all felt the weight of sin in our life, the effects of sin, the, the destruction of sin. Sin always destroys, sin always devastates. Paul says all that's part of the process so that we can recognize what sin is and it's sin becomes utterly sinful. So we wanna live this life where it's motivation to say, God, here's my life. I'm taking you at your word. I trust you. Not because I gotta keep these laws to be made right, but no, I'm in a loving relationship with you and I trust you know best. Over these past few years, I've seen some dudes, some, some tough guys uh, in a very different position in life. My father-in-law, for one, um, my, my mother-in-law has been sick, super sick for a couple years now. And uh, my, my father-in-law was my basketball coach in college and just kind of like, like a Christian Bobby Knight type figure. You know, like tough, like, but brass tacks kind of guy. But I've seen a tender side of him that I never even knew existed. Like tender and coach didn't seem to match. Um, but I've seen him countless days in the hospital with, with my mother-in-law. I've seen him not leave her side. Uh, I've seen her, him care for her in her most vulnerable moments. Uh, I've seen that with Josh. Um, we were at the hospital in ICU on Monday, I guess it was, and um, praying with Kristen and meeting with Josh. And, and I talked to uh, Kristen's parents in the waiting room afterwards, and they said, you know what, Josh just hasn't left her side. Like she, he's been here for days and hasn't showered. And so we finally convinced him yesterday to, to pry his hands away, to leave her side for a little bit, just to go shower, get cleaned up. And then he came right back and was right by her side to the very end. And what a beautiful gift that is for us as a church family to see. And what a beautiful gift um, for us to aspire to in relationships, to be there with people in the most vulnerable moments. But I thought about that in relationship to the law. Like, was, was there, is there a law that said, husbands, whenever your wife's in the hospital, you must be there, even if it means you stink and never shower? And if there was, and Josh said, oh, I'm doing this because the law says to, he'd be like, okay, it's commendable, but, but I would suggest to you there's another law at play. He just loved her. My father-in-law just loves my, my mother-in-law. Josh just loves Kristen. And no one said you had to do this, but it's love that motivated that behavior. It's lo love always requires action. I see Ray. Man, the way you love your wife in the midst of dementia, in the midst of all that, it's, it's love and action. No one told Ray he has to do it. But he loves Alice. Tough dude. You don't believe me, just ask him. He'll tell you. My boy Ray. So here's the question. What, what, so we're not under law, we're under grace. The Bible talks about old covenant, new covenant, old covenant under law, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, you be married with God. New law, Jesus says, I've entered a, a new reign of grace. It's about relationship with me. There's a, a law of grace, a covenant of freedom. Well, what governs us then? Like what, what, what's the standard? And I think it's this, and here's the final thought. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? 
relationship to my family, what does love require of me? My relationship to God, God, you've given it all for me. So what does love require of me? Love's always an action, never a feeling. What does love require of you? What are you processing where you need guidance? I think a good question is, God, what does love require of me? Whatever it is, I'm gonna do that. Let that be your North Star. Let that be your filter. You're free from the law. You're free from sin. You're invited into a loving relationship with Jesus where you align your life, just become more like him. And as you do, the more you become like Jesus, the more alive you become and you'll realize he's good. He's better than you thought he was. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you.